Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. So thank you for joining us today. Today's guest is Dr. Jean Caroccia. And I like saying that because I also have an Italian last name. <laughs> They're tough. They can be tough. They can be very tough. We, we, we know that. I met Dr. Caroccia through uh, our business accounts on Instagram and reached out to him. Um, he's written two wonderful books. And we had a discussion, I believe it was around uh, Christmas, about a couple of things, about how COVID has really been a game changer in people trying to find specialists for their children. Secondly, about how we know as parents and, and, and caregivers, ADHD is usually one of the first diagnoses that our kids get before they actually receive an FASD diagnosis. So uh, we talked about that. And Dr. Croce also addressed FASD in his latest book. So, so you might be thinking, why am I having Dr. Croce on FASD Hope since our podcast is about FASD? I really wanted him to share his experience to talk about obstacles that he has um, recognized that parents face in finding the correct specialist for their child, and also just to to provide tips and and helpful information for parents and caregivers on how they can get that right specialist to hopefully get that right diagnosis. So after that lengthy introduction, (laughs) Dr. Karocha, welcome to FASD Hope. Well, thank you so much, Natalie. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. And uh, let's just talk a little bit about your background and what led you into where you are today as a uh, professional and a leader in the ADHD community. Sure. I'd love to talk about that. So, you know, I'm a clinical licensed, um, licensed clinical psychologist. And part of my background is that for many years, I was the training director of a specialist uh, internship program for doctoral students in the last years of getting their doctorates in clinical psychology. And part of that uh, intensive internship was working at our child trauma program. And so we had a lot of children in foster care in our child trauma program. And as we all know, children in foster care often have a lot of special needs and have a lot of neurodiversity. And a very high percentage of them have fetal alcohol spectrum disorders or uh, fetal substance exposure. And so they have a lot of diagnostic complexity. And so I really started to wanted to give my interns and, and my, my trainees the best uh, training experience. And so I started to spend a lot of time uh, uh, trying to create some protocols and figure out how can I train these future psychologists that were soon to get their doctorates to be really excellent diagnosticians and treatment providers for, for dealing with and helping uh, children, adolescents, and families that had all these special challenges. And because they had so much diagnostic complexity, it really got very challenging because they would have presentations with ADHD, they'd have presentations with learning disorders, they'd have presentations with sensory processing difficulties and many other conditions. And as we know, as we know, these are very challenging kids and they were very confusing to families, to professionals, to providers, and also my staff. And so I started to really spend some time to 
try to operationalize and think about how can I create um, a really good diagnostic system and approach that can cover all of these different conditions because there are so many and it is so complicated. And so I started to really specialize in ADHD because a lot of them had um, ADHD presentations, but also many others. So I started to create this evaluation diagnostic system uh, that I would use with my interns, but then I would also tr uh, create treatment materials as well because I thought, you know, we really needed not just the diagnostics, but the treatment. So it's kind of the A and the B. So um, I spent a lot of time doing that. And then I also had a lot of um, patients that I would work with myself, uh, children, adolescents, families, adults, the whole range. And so I started creating a lot of handouts and materials that I would give to families uh, as part of my treatment because I wasn't finding enough um, materials out there that were reflecting what I wanted to say or, or my perspectives. Uh, even though there are wonderful things out there, I thought, I wanted kind of my own flavor of it. So I started to just start writing a lot of it and putting it together and integrating it. And uh, after a number of years, um, two books kind of came out of it. So that was something that was a labor of passion and uh, something I thought would, would help other people, obviously. So that's, that's why I, I did all that. And let's talk about ADHDology. Yeah, so ADHDology is my brand. Um, and so um, it's my two books, uh, but it's also my website. And, it's, and I also do um, some speaking. And uh, the website has uh, a lot of hope, uh, helpful materials, hopefully. So it has original articles I've written on uh, some of the topics we're gonna be talking about today, um, finding specialist providers, coexisting conditions, uh, ADHD treatment um, models and approaches, uh, as well as videos, and then also um, recommendations for other articles and also how to find providers and a whole bunch of resources. So that's, that's what I was um, hoping to share. So ADHDology.com. And that's where we found the article, what we're going to talk about today, which is five steps in finding the right specialist, which I think is really important because, you know, as, as a diagnostician, finding the correct specialist, finding the specialist that is appropriate for your child, for your loved one is so important because going to different specialists can delay a, a diagnosis and a delayed diagnosis is delayed treatment or delayed accommodations, delayed a lot of things. Before we start talking about five steps to finding a specialist, can you tell me a little bit about the work you've done in IEP and um, helping parents out? Sure, I'd love to. So um, I'll come back and touch that when we um, talk about looking for providers, uh, because it's so important for children that have neurodiversity and neurodevelopmental needs that they get the right educational experience. And part of my work over the years and also training, it has been to help people really navigate and understand the school system and also how to get the appropriate educational plans for your child. And so that's getting the right accommodations and the right school services. Some school districts without much work or intervention will do fantastic bubbles around children and, and will go racing ahead and, and get a lot of um, wonderful school services. And other schools um, you know, are very challenging, are trying to protect their budgets and, and are not uh, as helpful as they can or should be. And so a lot of parents just don't understand what their rights are, what their needs are, and so they struggle. And unfortunately, there's a lot of clinicians out there that also are not really understanding this role or have a perspective of, gee, I'm a clinician, I, I don't do educational advocacy. And so there's a kind of a 
you know, a, a black hole that happens for some families where they, they're just kind of at the mercy of what the school does. And sometimes it works out and many times it doesn't. So uh, I'm a really big fan of, of parents really understanding what the IEP process is, the individual education program plan is, and then also 504s, which is a different type, but similar, but different, and helping families kind of navigate that. So in a little bit, we'll talk about uh, school advocacy and getting um, the right school advocates, which you can pay for a uh, special education or um, special educational consults or consultants, and then their educational therapists. And I can talk a little bit about that because sometimes people aren't aware of, of educational therapists and, and their role. So the school has a, has a part with uh, FASD, uh, indiv individuals with FASD, and then also um, those that have neurodiversity. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about this great article, which again, you can find on ADHDology.com. Five steps to finding, the article is originally titled five, five steps to finding an ADHD specialist, but we are tweaking it today for this episode to talk about just five steps in finding the right specialist, because we know that can mean not only an FASD diagnostician, it can mean a developmental pediatrician. It can mean, you know, whatever type of specialist, you know, whether your child already has a FASD diagnosis or whether your child does not. We're just talking about the steps that you can take to be proactive in this search for finding the right specialist. So if you can start just sharing these steps and, and how you've outlined the article and how these steps can apply to parents who are looking for that right specialist. So um, let's talk about these five steps. The first step is determining the type of provider you need. So um, this can be challenging because a lot of times people don't know what they need. And this is the journey. So uh, Natalie just was mentioning before that, you know, ADHD is often a gateway condition. Uh, I think it's something like 60 to 94% of individuals with FASD um, have a ADHD diagnosis. Everyone's in a different place. So there are some people that uh, have older children or young adults or adolescents that have FASD. And so uh, their diagnostic needs might be very different than someone at the very beginning, which is, gee, you know, th things are, this child is not progressing and we're really concerned about their progress. And we keep getting these teacher complaints, but we don't know what's going on to people that, um, to families that have had some treatment providers and they have some answers and they're having some progress, but they're really not making enough. So everyone's in these different places, obviously. And what we, we have to do when we want a provider is to figure out at the very uh, first part is what do we need? So generally we can break it down into two areas. The first area is the diagnostics and then the second area is the treatment. Sometimes treatment providers like to start with their own diagnostics um, and then there's some diagnosticians that just, that's all they do. And then they, they have other treatment providers. Um, some modalities like um, occupational therapy or PT, physical therapy, they're going to do it both. But then sometimes there's these other specialists that just do these different areas. So we really have to start thinking about, you know, where to start. So you need to really think about what are your child's challenges or needs now? And again, some families might say, I don't know, we're, we're just struggling. Okay, well, in what areas? So sometimes people say, well, everything, you know, we're struggling at school, we're struggling at home, we're st struggling with social difficulties, um, there's having all these medical symptoms and problems. Um, others will have a very concentrated area where they're just struggling with anxiety or they're just struggling with raging at home, but they tend to do really well at home at, at school. So we really have to kind of uh, kind of focus on what 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 piece are we doing? As a clinical psychologist, 
you know, because of my training and my perspectives, I'm, I'm really a, a huge advocate of getting the right diagnostics. So this can be challenging, just like finding a treatment provider can. And if people start going, seeing a lot of specialists, like Natalie said, sometimes it can delay uh, and people get this diagnostic paralysis as it's called sometimes where they just can't seem to make a decision. And sometimes different providers are um, have different perspectives. And so this can get very frustrating um, for families as well. But we really want to think about what do we need? So, um, I would really encourage families that if they haven't had diagnostics in a while, um, that to really think about that if they're struggling with, there's new presentations, there's new behaviors, there's new difficulties that we haven't seen before that we're just not understanding. Um, sometimes parents have a really good intuitive sense that something's wrong here or we're missing something because the answers I'm getting from my providers aren't really explaining in my mind I don't have a good sense of why there's a disconnect here. That's where diagnostics can come in, where somebody can really start to try to help break down what's going on. So there's different types of diagnosticians. You know, one of the areas that I really like to look at is neuropsychologists. And as we know, neuropsychologists are really uh, part of the, the, the core team that are gonna identify uh, and diagnose FASD, but they also have a role to do updates and checkups, diagnostic checkups. So a lot of times families will get a diagnosis of FASD and they say, well, okay, it's diagnosed. And then, you know, now we're, we're doing other things. And, and that's important, that's fine. However, um, because of developmental challenges, because of brain development, because of just different things that happen in life, um, children can have, um, and teens and young adults and adult, adults can develop different conditions anywhere along the, the uh, spectrum. So they might have very different clinical presentations at six, then 10, then 15, then 24. So we really want to think about, uh, is it time to go back and get a checkup and see if we're missing any conditions that might be diagnosed, or we can have some kind of a checkup with uh, their intellectual abilities, with their social functioning, with all the different areas. And that's where a neuropsychologist can come in. And if I can um, sure, interject, please. I know for, from our experience in working with a neuropsychologist for getting that neuropsych developmental profile, um, we've had to do it several times right. because as Children with brain-based diagnoses, um, especially, you know, FASD, as they age, from what I understand, the neuropsych, the neuropsych development profile changes. So it looks right. different, like from 13 versus 16 versus 18. Is that correct? Ab absolutely. And it's really important to bring your prior testing results to each of these different appointments along the way, because the providers are going to build on the past scores. They're going to be looking at how they were improving or changing um, with their development, with, with their responses to the different neuropsych tests and measures that are going on. So you really want to do that. Absolutely. The diagnostics are really important. Neuropsych is, is one piece of it. Um, obviously, there's a whole range of other providers. And so knowing your child and knowing the challenges that you have, uh, is it time to go back to some of the providers to, to get diagnostics? And also, should you be talking to your, your current treatment providers on their opinions? They might really say, you know, yeah, it is time to go back. And gee, I think we're getting fuzzy here. Providers get lost sometimes and, and they tend to, they, they can have a habit of if they know a client really well, sometimes they lose objectivity. 
So the diagnostics are really good to say, okay, I want a fresh perspective. I want someone to take their emotions and their relationship out of working with my child. And I want them to just kind of be a blank slate and just tell me, you know, what are the strengths? What are the challenges? Where are we at? You know, what, what's, you know, that kind of thing. So it, there's, a, there's a real advantage sometimes of going to different diagnosticians or different neuropsychologists over time. There's also advantage of going to the same one because they might have some of the same scores and some of those materials. So that's, that's, that's one perspective. There's other providers, like I said, that are out there. Psychiatrists and neuropsychiatrists are not going to be doing as much diagnostics. They tend to refer to other people doing that, um, but they can do their own um, clinical evaluations. And some of them will write reports and, and do uh, write their own write-ups about what their clinical impressions are. And, and that, that has a utility as well. So that's that's some of the diagnostics. The next part is uh, from the step one of trying to identify your provider is treatment providers. So then it's a matter of what do we need? What, 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 where are we stuck and who should we be talking to? So there's a, a, a whole number of providers that, that we can talk about depending on the functioning level of the child, depending on, you know, the clinical psychologist's experience, that can be something that um, from a treatment provider perspective can um, really be helpful and going to different providers for their opinions on treatment. A lot, we're going to get to this in a later step, but it's, it can be very helpful to get different providers perspective of, well, here's where we're at. Here's the challenges. Now, what would you recommend? What would be the treatment plan that you would suggest here? And it's kind of a consultation. A lot of times families are so desperate to find somebody, anybody work with me, somebody, and we'll just do anything you say. That, that, I understand that because there's, there's a real challenge finding providers. I get that. Um, and it can be really helpful sometimes to back up and really kind of talk about how would you approach things? This is what we think. Let's see if this is a good match. Um, with telehealth options, there might be more providers and there might be more opportunities for consultations to find the right provider. Because a lot of families sometimes don't find the right provider. They feel desperate and they might settle or find providers that just don't feel right or maybe just they don't have a good connection with. And, you know, every family has to do the best they can. And sometimes, you know, if you're limited in rural areas or, or other places where you don't have a lot of choices, you got to do the best you can. But sometimes, Sometimes you, you do have some choices. So it, it's good to think about that because there, there can be um, uh, a real challenge sometimes of families just to kind of anybody be nice to us, anybody help us because we've been really struggling. So it, just something to, to think about with that. There's also other behavioral health clinicians out there, obviously, that aren't clinical psychologists that might have a great experience. We're going to, in a later step, in a few moments, I'm going to talk about what kind of questions to ask, but obviously you want people that are experienced and really have an interest and a passion for this field. Now, there's not as many providers out there because there's just not enough good clinical training, which is uh, one of the challenges uh, that I hope with further research and funding and governmental uh, interventions and legislative actions that, you know, we can really talk about training, but th there are other providers out there. So I'm, I'm, uh, I have some places that people can find those providers. We're going to talk about that in an additional step. Uh, let's talk about coaches. Um, coaching for behavioral challenges is a somewhat newer field. Um, I have a whole bunch of colleagues that I presented with a few months ago at the National uh, Chad International Conference where coaching um, over the past 20 years, and particularly for adolescents and children, has become a, a whole new field. Um, when you have children that have different neurodiversity, and you know, really that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about kids that have neurodiversity. Um, we're, we're focusing on FASD, but you know, 
as we know, with children and families that have FASD, they have neurodiversities and they have different neurodevelopmental challenges. And so there, there's a number of providers that can really kind of look at these different conditions. So there's a whole group of coaches that come up and their perspective is to, or, or some of them, I can't speak for all of them, is to really work with families and parents, providing training, and then for older children and adolescents to work with them. These may or may not be a good fit depending on the level of the experience of the coach and also uh, the comfort level that families have and also what their goals are. But I, I would like to say that it, it can be an area that can help. I think the challenge is if you have an ADHD coach that doesn't understand neurocomplexities, neurodevelopmental complexities, they might oversimplify things. And so they might uh, not be as helpful, but I think that's where the interviewing comes in, which is a, a step we're going to get to in a moment to say, hey, if you're a parent, hey, I have a child that has neurodiversity. They have a number of coexisting conditions. They have ADHD-like qualities, not necessarily full ADHD, but that's part of their brain functioning challenges and their executive deficits uh, that they're presenting with. How do you feel, uh, do you feel comfortable that you would be able to help my child? Do you want to do an interview to, to you know, kind of review more information? So that's an area. If, if coaching is a potential area, and, and there are um, clinical psychologists that are coaches as well. Um, I did a presentation with an excellent one in Illinois who's a licensed clinical psychologist and a coach. These would be really good people to, to, that might be able to provide different services. Coaching, unfortunately, has its deficits because it's not covered by insurance. But, you know, for families that have resources or, or might be able to, to um, you know, find a coach that's, um, that can work with them, that would, that would really be great. And I have some links in the article to find some coaches, um, some high quality coaches, uh, hopefully. So we can come back to that. The last area uh, for providers is uh, finding a special education slash school advocate or a special education consultant. And these are individuals that may or may not be attorneys, but they specialize with helping families get the right IEPs and then also work with schools so that the schools treat them fairly and equitably so that they can have um, appropriate plans. And with, with uh, educational plans, it's kind of two challenges. One is getting the, the, the right plan services. And then the other plan, uh, the other challenge is, is the school implementing what they should be doing, what they say they're doing or what's written down. So these advocates take um, a perspective of really working with the parents and sometimes going into the schools with meetings and th they can be wonderful. So it's not something that most people think about or talk about, but the educational resources for these special school advocates um, can be priceless, particularly if families are struggling with schools that are, they feel mistreating their child, um, not giving them the right educational opportunities, placing them in inappropriate educational settings where it's just, you know, not good for the child or, or others, and, and it's unfair. So um, that, that's a resource. And then the last um, provider to think about is educational therapists. And this is a, a newer area that some people may or may not know about, but they're generally educators that start to focus on um, addressing the learning and school difficulties in very specific ways. They can be tutors, but it's really kind of more than tutoring. They tend to specialize with kids that have neurodiversity and neurodevelopmental challenges, and they tend to know how to navigate through the school system. So they can be school advocates, but it, it, they're really educational therapists. And there's a lot of clinical, most clinical therapists are not going to really dig into 
what to do about the homework problems or the learning problems, uh, particularly when children have uh, learning deficits. As we know with children and adolescents uh, and adults that have uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, they have a lot of math learning challenges in addition to other learning challenges. And so therapists don't really get into the day-to-day while they're, they're failing or they're struggling. And so um, these educational therapists really specialize with you know, what are their educational needs? How can they learn in a better way? And then they often will work with the with the school staff and the special educators of the school staff to kind of fill in those gaps. These are not paid by insurance. This is out of pocket and it's it's a new area and it's not as regulated. There are some people that can kind of call themselves this and might not be uh, the best, but I do have a link in the article that is for the Association of Educational Therapists website, and they have a directory and they might have some some helpful uh, resources there. So that was a long step one. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm getting excited. And if you could see me talk, I'm using my hands a lot. So that's because uh, that's, we're Italian. You're Italian. I'm, really, I'm <laughs> going to say that's that's the long last name. Okay, so let's go to step two. Okay. Step two is finding the potential provider. So you figured out in step one, what do I need? What 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 am I looking for? Step two is finding that potential provider. So with ADHD, with learning disorders, with behavioral problems, with FASD, with other conditions, there's plenty of therapists, psychotherapists, or other providers that say they specialize in this or that area, and they actually may or may not. So what's important is to try to uh, connect with them and try to drill down and try to understand that a little bit more. We'll get to that. That's the next step. But in this area, what we're trying to do is find names. We're looking for names and contacts so we can talk to people and we can identify them. So the first step can be talking to the providers that you have. So your primary care physician and any trusted health professionals. Primary care physicians may or may not be helpful. They may or may not have resources. It's a first step. It may or may not be helpful, but it's it's someone to try. The next one is to try to use your health plan, your health insurance. So a lot of times people will call the health insurance and say, I'm looking for a therapist. And then they go into a black hole and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, the customer service person at, uh, you know, X insurance company uh, didn't understand what I needed. And um, I couldn't get a list of everybody or I got a list and they were really outdated. That can, that can happen. Um, what we're trying to do is target some areas of these specific providers that we want and you're looking for different areas of them and you're going to talk to a lot of people and you're going to try to come up with them so the the health insurance is an avenue although it it, sometimes people need a lot more focus with that another area is looking for provider referral resources one of them is uh the nofas but that may or may not have exactly what you need. Natalie, can you talk about a, another area that can help uh, with Absolutely. this? So we NOFAS is, is the National Organization of Fetal Alcohol Syndrome, and it's considered the, the National Organization for FASD. They have affiliates in, um, and they have a wonderful website, nofas.org, um, where you can go on to find a resource where they list by state, resources, FASD specialists, providers, diagnostic clinics. What I tell people to do when when people email us here at FASD Hope is is I tell them to, of course, call and find out. Some of them may not be running, you know, or may may have closed or some new ones may have opened and, and are not on there. NOFAS is a wonderful resource. The other thing that I have found is in parent support groups, word of mouth and talking to other parents about 
say universities, like for us, we're in North Carolina, we're, we're near a couple of wonderful, um, you know, universities that actually are involved in FASD research. So talking to parent support groups and contacting your, um, you know, either like the pediatric department of your local university, you know, uh, universities that do uh, research out in that area. I know out West University of Washington. I know we've had Dr. Christy Petrenko as a guest from University of Rochester. So those are a couple of resources that I find. And then finally, um, state organizations in FASD, contacting the state nonprofits or, or the state affiliates, either in NOFAS or Proof is another one, Proof Alliance. I found that those resources are usually pretty accurate and pretty current in what's available in your area. Um, but I definitely want to talk to you in a little bit, um, Jean, about how telehealth is changing a lot of this, because hopefully that's increasing accessibility for people in finding providers. So I'm going to hand it back to you. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yes, it certainly is. And we're going to get to that in a moment. So just to highlight a few of those, um, look for your university systems and the, the medical teaching university systems, because they often have programs where they're working with neurodevelopmental challenges. And when you find departments that have child neurobehavioral centers, they can be much more open to helping individuals with FASD or other conditions. And so they're, they're, that they're in the, that, that's more in their wheelhouse. And, and that's something that they're, um, more comfortable with. Because as we know with FASD, we want really more of a multidisciplinary team, ideally, to be doing some of the assessments or reassessments that we've been talking about. Also on my list is state psychological associations. And the state psychological associations are really the clinical psychologist state organizations. And they often have provider directories, and they will list who does neurodevelopmental testing. And those can be really good resources to find neuropsychologists because neuropsychologists can be tough to find in um, navigating into when you're calling um, health insurance companies. Sometimes they aren't listing them in the right places, unfortunately, or they're just not uh, helpful or they misconfuse them with neurologists. And so that's one little tip that a lot of people have told me that is very helpful is going to those state organizations. Uh, there's also, I have an American Academy of Clinical Neuropsychologists in the United States. And so that's another, they have a provider list so they can often help you do that. Okay. So there's a whole bunch of these places. Um, it's not magic. Um, this is really pushing the boulder up the mountain. But the more you are talking to people, the more persistent you are, oftentimes, the more you just you know, by chance, divine intervention, where you'll get the name of a provider, you'll find somebody or you talk to somebody and talk to somebody and talk to somebody, and then they, they lead you to the right person. So um, always good whenever you're calling providers to say, do you know anyone that's doing what I'm looking for, or works with children or teens that have these kinds of problems? And they might say, yeah, you know, call this person, Dr. So-and-so. Okay, step three is where you're really going after you've got a name, you're gonna really try to talk to that provider. Now, I know that that might sound kind of crazy sometimes because some people are like, oh, you can never talk to doctors, they never talk to you. Some you can, some won't talk to you, but some you can. Um, I have found over the years that many people, if not most, tend to have their emails somewhere online. And if you can get an email, you might be able to A, ask some questions and do this by email or B, beg them to talk on the phone for 10 or 15 minutes. So that's that's an option. But the idea, and, and, and if you can't talk to the provider, 
um, try to talk to an office manager or someone on their staff that could answer these questions because some of the office staff do know the, the providers very well and they could say, oh, I know Dr. Y does this or that, or this is their approach, that kind of thing. So the idea is you wanna call and speak to someone or email them and or a practice provider and you want to try to ask them some specific questions. And, and these are just some of them. So first of all, this is an empowerment know that you can do this. They can always say no, but this is part of being an assertive parent and caregiver where you really want to reach out and try to talk to these providers or someone in there. And you can do this. You're allowed to do this. And if they aren't going to do it, they're going to say no, but it, it doesn't hurt to try. And what you're really trying to do is try to get a, a good sense of are they the right fit for you? So you can say, what kind of experience do you have with working with children, teens, adults, whoever, young adults, working with X, Y, Z problems or conditions? How many patients are you currently working with that have X, Y, Z problems, conditions? What is your approach when you're diagnosing these conditions for these individuals? How do you do that? Can you tell me about that? What is your approach when you do treatment? What are some common treatment plans or um, uh, goals that you have working with individuals with XYZ problems? And then finally, what do you do to address coexisting conditions or how would you work with someone that has um, some diagnostic complexity? So these or other similar questions are, are fair, they're appropriate, and it really can help guide people with finding someone that's the right match. If you have someone that's confident, a provider that, that is going to work in the area, they'll, they, and they're willing to talk with you, they're going to say the right things, and hopefully you're going to get a sense of, yes, this person does sound competent what they're doing. They do have a good caseload. And hopefully you can heal, feel a passion from them or an interest that, you know, yes, there is hope. And I do work with individuals and, you know, I do like working with these kinds of families. So that's what you want to do. You really want to try to, to talk with them. It's not magic, but it's something that really uh, can help. And I, I've, I've, I've seen it from a lot of directions and, and I find that it, it, it does work more times than not. And if the provider doesn't talk with you, then, you know, maybe you try some other providers and then come back to that one if, if you've run out of options. Okay, we're almost done. Step four is at the first session, you've got an appointment, you found the person, you're, you're, you're going to be there at the first session, do a quick review again, say, hey, just just as a, at the very beginning, here's why I'm here, this is what we're looking for, just want to double check, this is something that you work with, is this something you're comfortable with? Most providers, they, they kind of, you know, they want to take over and do their thing, but you really want to check in sooner than later with them about, are we on the same page? Is this something that you can work with? Do you feel comfortable with this? Hopefully you're reviewing again at the very uh, very beginning, you're clarifying what your goals are, what you need, what kind of challenges you've had. Share, share situations sooner than later of here's some providers that didn't work for us, or here's what we, we just didn't find that was helpful for us. Put that up there up front because you want them to know what works and what doesn't. And you know, at the very beginning, it's always a try to it's always a sense of a match of is this provider the right person that we feel comfortable with? And do they have the competency and the experience, and the expertise to help us? And, you know, not every provider can work with every individual. And it's the sooner that everyone can figure this out, it's really to the advantage of all. And then finally, step five, if you don't get that good match, if you're working with the provider and you're just not feeling the progress or you feel like they're, they're just not invested in the way you want or you're getting the results you want, 
go back and do step two or three. Go back and go back to your list, find, identify what you need or want, and then get on the phone and try and, or email and try and talk with them and try and, and go through your interviewing again and keep going. So those are the five steps. As a mom who's been through that process many times, um, many you know, times, we, sure. we have we've had many years until we received the, the right diagnosis. I can really appreciate your telling parents to really advocate and speak up because I think that's so important, you know, in when you're in that interview or even beforehand, when you're emailing and getting to, to make sure, you know, this provider is, is doing something for you. So don't be afraid to, to share information. Don't be afraid. Another thing that, that I've found helpful, um, my husband actually, you know, he's really very organized. We would just always come in with a notebook. And we would, you know, take, take notes. notes, exactly. Take notes, bring notes, you know, that we've had from other visits, like you said, you know, uh, bring reports, bring things like that. I, I feel like that if you come as a, as a well-prepared parent who is not afraid to ask questions, I feel like that that gives your child the best opportunity to, to get the appropriate diagnosis. Well said. I, I also like to suggest that families um, bring copies of reports so that you don't have to, you don't want to leave your originals and, and get into a situation where you could lose a report that you never get back. So right. that's a helpful tip. Right. Well, I know we only have a few minutes left, but I did really want to jump in and, and, and share about uh, the excitement of telehealth. So, you know, we have a lot of, we've had a lot of challenges uh, with COVID, as we know, and it's brought a lot of difficulties and uh, there's uh, been um, many, many hardships that have come. One of the good things that's come out of this, at least in the behavioral health world, also the healthcare world in general, uh, is that it's really exploded the door open to telehealth. And uh, telehealth as um, in the United States was something that was utilized, but very few providers were, were doing it. There was a lot of reluctance that providers had. Behavioral health providers get uh, have a lot of, um, have high standards for confidentiality. And so there were all these other barriers where uh, people weren't comfortable with the modality and weren't using it. And it just was a really underutilized resource. Everything's changed now. So, so many healthcare providers, so many behavioral health providers are now using this modality. And the good news is that this has really opened the door so that we don't have these geographic limitations the way we used to with providers. So families can get diagnostic services to certain degrees. There are some limits with that. I'll talk about that in a moment, but also treatment in a way where they, they just had such limitations before. So diagnostics can be limited sometimes um, because um, there might be some real hands-on testing that they're doing or um, pen and paper activities that they're asking individuals to do. Um, a lot of um, Providers use measures, and so sometimes those measures can be emailed and used digitally. Sometimes they can't be. That's something that's going to uh, probably um, really progress. But telehealth is here to stay now. So when you know COVID here or not, telehealth is here to stay, and there are a lot of positives for it. So when you are and you're living in your state, there are providers that um, are licensed in the state that can practice anywhere. So if you have a really big state that you couldn't travel across the state very, state very easily, you now have access to really every other provider potentially in your state. So if you are using your health insurance, you can get people that are not close to you that are much further away and you know, call them and find out how much telehealth is really an option. 
There is also organizations now where clinicians can be joining uh, groupings of states where they can practice across state lines if they're joining these special telehealth organizations that allow their licenses that, that to be um, practice across state lines. Not every state, there's certain states that are joining, but that's only going to be continuing in the years to come. So we really now have an option that we really didn't have so much, uh, you know, not all that long ago. And I really want to encourage families to, you know, use that option. But again, follow the five steps and do the same thing. See if you can get on a, a call with them. See if you can email them. We all have a bigger radius now. So that's, that's a really, that's, that's a real plus with the use of telehealth that will hopefully decrease maybe some of the wait times for many of these families who I hear from, and I know personally, you know, that wait years or, or a very long time for their child to have the right diagnosis. So that's great. This has been such informative and um, enlightening and hopeful conversation with you, because I know there are so many people on different parts of this journey, um, whether you're readdressing an issue, like you said, or whether you're at the very beginning of, of seeking a diagnosis, this is all just wonderful, helpful information. And I think it's just a pep talk for parents to say, okay, you can do this. You can get that right diagnosis. You can get that right specialist just keep these things in mind. So that, that was one of the many reasons why I really appreciated and uh, liked, you know, this article so much. So I like to end our conversations on um, a hope takeaway, words of hope that we can give to families, caregivers, other professionals, anyone who's listening, how you have hope in what you've been seeing, especially I want to say in the past couple of years about how parents just should not give up in finding that right specialist. You know, it, it's so important to really be the possibility, be the light, be the torch for change, for growth, for a better day, a better year, a better life for your family and for, for your child and for whatever condition they're struggling with. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're already doing it because you're reaching out and you're wanting more and you're wanting information. And I can't tell you how many families I've seen where they have struggled, they've been frustrated, but they kept inside, they kept going because there's something inside them that knew we just don't have the answers. And even though they, they had bad days, they had bad weeks, they had bad years, they kept going. And they did find that person that opened a door that then opened another door that then opened another door eventually, where they were finding a connection of providers, and were able to make a, a difference in their child's life. They're out there, you know, they are out there. It's just a matter of persisting and pushing the boulder up the mountain because the boulder will get up the mountain and you will find them. You just have to kind of hang in there and you have to take care of yourself. Um, the self-care is so important. You deserve to take care of yourself on this journey. It's a long journey, but you know your child needs you and your family needs you and you've already gotten this far. So you've, you've, you've already you know, had, had your steps on the journey and there's more to go, but you can do it. Uh, so thank you for, for persisting and listening and, and really, um, you know, being the possibility. That is wonderful. I love that hope takeaway. Dr. Jean Karochia, thank you so much for being on FASD Hope. And thank you for sharing this awesome um, summary of your article, Five Steps in Finding the Right Specialist. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Karochia. And again, thank you for tuning in today and we will catch you next time.
Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com. Or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week. And remember, to be informed, take care, and always have hope.